Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I want to continue our series, He Chose the Nails, and this is the last week in our Easter series, with a topic beyond failure. All of us make mistakes in our lives. Some of them are more public than others. Sometimes things happen that we can't really hide. And when those things happen, sometimes it's hard to get up as a Christian. It's hard to know what God thinks of us. Hard to know what other Christians think of us. And I want to talk about that today. Bill Buckner spent 22 years as a first baseman and outfielder in the major leagues. Passed away at the age of 69 just three or four years ago. He led the league in doubles twice, finished in the top 10 for stolen bases twice as well. He was the National League batting champion in 1980 and was an all-star in 1981. Yet there is no player in MLB history whose career was defined more by one mistake than Buckner. Now Buckner played for the Boston Red Sox for much of his career. And there's something in Boston, if you know anything about Major League Baseball, the Boston Red Sox had what was called the Curse of the Bambino. Anyone heard of that, Curse of the Bambino? All right, a few. I'm not getting a lot of help here with this illustration, but I'm going to have to do a lot of explaining. Okay, the Curse of the Bambino. What that comes from is this. In about 1920, about 1920, when some of us were two or three, in about 1920, the Boston Red Sox sold the rights to uh, Babe Ruth, who was one of the greatest players in the history of baseball. They sold his rights to the New York Yankees. Boston and New York are in the same division. They're rivals. They don't like each other. And after that, New York became great. They won all kinds of World Series, and Boston had an 86-year drought of winning a World Series. And so Boston fans look at it as the curse of the Bambino because we basically gave away the greatest player in history. All right, so Buckner's playing for the Red Sox during the curse of the Bambino. It's the fall of 1986. The Red Sox had a 3-2 series lead over the New York Mets. But in the top half of the 10th inning of game six, the Mets' Mookie Wilson hit a roller to Buckner at first base. And I remember this, I've seen it on video. Most of us would field that ball. Roller to first base that trickled through Buckner's legs and into the outfield. The Mets scored on the play to win game six. They then won game seven. They went, then went on to win the World Series. Buckner's error at a clutch moment catapulted him atop the list of sports' worst ever blunders. After his playing days, he even had to move away from the Boston area to Idaho, of all places, due to the explosive rage of those around him. In other words, he couldn't be in Boston with Boston fans. You think they're bad, live in Philadelphia. Any, that's another issue. Hard feelings between Buckner and Boston fans lasted for decades. But things began to change when the Red Sox finally won the World Series in 2004 and 2007. The curse of the Bambino was over. The power of forgiveness was on full display in 2008 when Buckner returned to Fenway Park to throw out the first pitch of the home opener. He received a standing ovation from Red Sox fans that lasted nearly two minutes and brought tears to his eyes. 
Buckner leaned on his strong Christian faith to help him overcome the past he couldn't avoid. He said, I'm a person of faith. It's life, and everybody has to deal with something. You're talking about cancer and those things that are much more important than baseball. Spiritually, that helped me. I've had a lot of people call me and thank me for giving them directions to make it through difficulties. His family said, our hearts are broken, but we're at peace knowing he's in the arms of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was a devout Christian. But one mistake, even though he was a great player for a long time, one mistake defined him. And a whole city hated him because of it. I can still picture that ground ball. It changed that series and it changed his life. He wasn't the same man. Failure has a way of sticking with us in a way that success doesn't. But in our world today, we're actually changing the definition of failure quite a bit. For some time, and this has started in education, almost all bad things start in education, but we won't talk about that today, that's another topic. For some time, educators have faced accusations of dumbing down exams in order to compensate for increasingly poor student performances. The Professional Association of Teachers, the PAT in Great Britain, recently proposed, now this is an old story, but they proposed another solution and they decided to ban the word fail from classrooms and replace it with the phrase deferred success. Eliminating negative language, a spokesman for the group said, would help avoid the lasting educational problems associated with the labeling of pupils. Applying this type of thinking to theology would lead us to eliminate the word sin. Instead, we might speak of deferred obedience or even delayed righteousness. Now, that was a while back, and this is filtered through schools in all of the Western world where we don't want to fail a child, even though it might be the best thing for them at certain points. We don't want to label them in any way, and I understand some of that. I agree with some of it, but there has to be a standard. That was 2005, and unfortunately, the kids who weren't failing then are probably still deferring success in their life now. But we know the truth. And we can only fool ourselves for so long. In our quiet moments, no matter how it's labeled by others, no matter how we label it, we tend to rehearse our failures a whole lot more than we rehearse our successes. And I know I do and have. It's a real thing. There's a reason for that, actually. Your brain is actually wired to do that. Failures take on a life of their own. Perry Buffington, licensed psychologist, author, columnist, wrote an article, or a book, I should say, Forgive or Forget. Failures take on a life of their own because the brain remembers incomplete tasks or failures longer than any success or completed activity. So if something goes well, your brain files it. If something doesn't go well, your brain can't file it. It's technically referred to as the Zagarnik effect. When a project or a thought is completed, the brain places it in a special memory. The brain no longer gives the project priority or active working status, and bits and pieces of the achieved situation begin to decay. So when you have something goes well, your brain files it, you start forgetting about that. Failures have no closure. The brain continues to spin the memory, trying to come up with ways to fix the mess and move it from active to inactive status. Isn't that fascinating? We obsess over our failures because we, we, we haven't necessarily found some completion. We haven't been able to file them because they remain sort of in limbo. Successes, we just move on. That's a real phenomenon. 
failure doesn't let us move on unless we find resolution. If you apply that to relationships, if you can't get forgiveness or resolution or reconciliation in a relationship, you will tend to keep processing that situation. When you apply it to the rest of life, if you, if you go through some struggle, whether it's uh, you know, employment-wise or another relationship or something else that happens in life, unless you can sort of get through it, perhaps another opportunity, success, moving on, you will continue to spin that negative situation in your mind. I want to talk about that today. I want you to turn to John chapter 21, page 90 in your Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. The New Testament, the last quarter of the book, starts over on page 1. This is on page 90. Page 90. John chapter 21, page 90. We're going to read the first part of this passage. John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself. Now he's risen from the dead. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Sea of Galilee. I think this is one of the very few, if not the only time, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. That would be the Roman name for it. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, or twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So seven of them. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, so Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish, or do you? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, we believe that would be John, who always refers to himself that way. It's kind of interesting. Therefore, Jesus' favorite said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, kind of the dinghy. They were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the boat or on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. So this just smacks of another eyewitness account. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So if you recall, you've got the time Sunday night when he was resurrected, the next week on Sunday night, and this is now the third after he had told them to go into Galilee. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. We'll stop there. 
Just two simple points from this passage and then some applications for us. Beyond failure, dealing with what cannot be ignored. The Gospel of John, actually, if you look through it, and if you look through it like you're an editor or a scholar or a reader, uh, you can see that it, it kind of ends at the end of chapter 20. In fact, I'm going to read those verses for you. The end of chapter 20 and verse 30, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the last verses in John chapter 20 basically wrap up the gospel. It might as well be the end of the gospel. When you look at it, it is a summary of the gospel and a summary of the gospel's purpose. They're clearly a conclusion. The gospel has accomplished its purpose. So then you ask, well, then why chapter 21? Was this sort of an afterthought? Because it reads sort of like an appendix or an epilogue. It's a nice story, but it's not there to give us just another example of Jesus peering to his disciples. John 21 is in all of the early manuscripts that are complete uh, books of John. Chapter 21 is always there, so it wasn't added later. It clearly is a part of the gospel, but it also clearly could have ended at the end of chapter 20. Now, some say there's a misunderstanding in the early church about when Jesus is coming back. In fact, if you look at verses 22 and 23, I'm just going to let you know about this because scholars highlight this. One of the purposes might be Jesus said to Peter, if I want John to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Because Peter was basically asking, you know, who's going to die first, me or John? Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So in the early church, some people thought there was this promise to John that Jesus would return before John would die. And so one of the purposes here is just to clarify, Jesus is saying, I don't know how that got out there, but that's not what's going on here. Uh, John is clarifying that. But that's not the real reason John chapter 21 is written. The real reason is this issue between Peter and Jesus of a massive failure in Peter's life. And once it became a massive failure in Peter's life, unfortunately, Peter did it pretty publicly. So now it's a massive failure between Peter and Jesus that is also an issue between Peter and the other disciples because they all know about it and it's sort of the elephant in the room and when it's public, it's sort of a massive failure between Peter and himself because he's got all this shame going on in his life. He's humiliated, and he doesn't really know how to move on. That's the elephant in the room that needs to be dealt with. Because if you just end the Gospel of John in chapter 20, when it says it's accomplished its purpose, what you won't understand is how can Peter then be the greatest leader in the early church for the first 14 or 15 pages or chapters in the book of Acts? How does he ever get up when the last thing he did was so horrific? How can he ever recover from this devastating failure? And also, how does Jesus react to our failures, to Peter's failure? I mean, is Jesus' view, three strikes and you're out? I mean, you may get to heaven, but I'm not using you. Is that how Jesus reacts when we mess up? Or, you know, I'm moving on, I need a better disciple, I expect more. So what did Peter do that created this relational damage? 
Well, let's just review that. So it's the week of Jesus' death. He and his disciples are, are not on the same page about what's going to happen. So a couple million people are coming into Jerusalem in and around the week of Passover, and uh, the disciples and Jesus are having little debates about what's going to happen there because Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He's going to pay for the sins of the whole world. He keeps saying these morbid things to his disciples. They're not understanding why that is necessary in the first place. The theology of the cross was not really understood by them until afterwards. The disciples are against what Jesus is going to do. They see a miracle worker who is capable of anything. And they want to ride that train as far as it will go. So when they're coming towards Jerusalem and Jesus is thinking he's going to die for people, the disciples are thinking, no, 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 no. We've got a guy here who is the Messiah and he has like divine abilities. So we want to ride that to freedom from Rome. We want to ride that to, you know, world domination, intergalactic superiority, whatever it is. We've got God in the flesh with us. We're following him. He can do anything. And so when Jesus keeps saying, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. At one point, you remember, Peter gets in Jesus' face and says, no. You know, stop it with the morbid thinking. We've got bigger plans for you than you do. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Not one of Peter's better moments. You do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men because Jesus' purpose was to die for humanity. The disciples just wanted to ride Jesus' miraculous abilities as far as they would go. So it was easy for the disciples to sort of talk trash and be tough about the Jesus movement because they didn't believe what Jesus was selling yet. They didn't believe he was going to die. All they see is these transformative, miraculous abilities that he has. They are traveling for three years. They're camping out with God. And they had seen him do all kinds of things miraculously. The Last Supper. They don't know it's the Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper because we're looking back. Jesus didn't say, hey, let's go have the Last Supper. The Last Supper. Peter's making some big claims. Jesus predicted, again, his morbid statements. You know, there's going to be a mass exodus of loyalty with all of you. You're going to fall away. What does Peter say? Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, look around you, Jesus. There's 12 of us here. I'm the one guy that you can count on. You look up loyal in the dictionary, you'll see my picture right next to it. That's Peter's view. Jesus says to him, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, no, no, no. Even if everyone else falls away, not me, I will die for you. And at first, Peter delivered. I love Peter. I mean, if there's one disciple I can identify with of the 12, it'd be Peter. Paul would be probably the, the one personality-wise I suspect we're a little the same. But Peter, I love Peter. I mean, he's impetuous. He's out there. He's the first guy to say something in a controversial situation. He's always getting himself in trouble. I can relate to that a little bit. Peter gets in the garden. The arresting party comes to, to, to take him, uh, to, to take Jesus. What does Peter do? He puts on display 
that he's got Jesus back. He pulls out his sword. Not only does he pull it out, he does something. He's a man of action. He swings that short sword and he cuts a guy's ear off. It's awesome. Awesome. Good job, Peter. Like, good job. Way to back up what you just said a few hours earlier. He's armed himself. Jesus picks up that ear off the ground, puts it back on Malchus' head, and heals him. Peter's thinking, well, that's not exactly what I was expecting out of this brawl. Because it soon became clear that Jesus wasn't going to fight back. That Jesus was going to let himself be taken that Jesus was now managing down his miraculous abilities. He wasn't going to act like God in his miracle capacity. Peter didn't expect that. He's thinking, whatever we come up against, with Jesus' miraculous powers and my short sword, we're good. But now Jesus isn't helping out. The short sword is the only thing that's really acting. So if Jesus isn't going to act like Jesus, maybe it is over. Maybe he is going to die. Well, it's time to put my sword away, and why take any major risks? It's, it's time to take care of Peter. So when Jesus was taken, Peter was confused, and he began to follow the trial in the middle of the night. Wherever the trial went, Peter followed. All four Gospels give an account of what happened next, which is very rare, by the way. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. And the idea there is they share information in the Gospel formation. They sort of have the same stories. There's a little overlap in detail in those stories, but they share the same stories for the most part. I don't know what the percent is, but a lot of them share the same stories. John is very unique. John has very little overlap with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is one of the few situations where Peter's failure, we all got to cover this one. This is in all three or all four Gospels. Peter finds himself outside in a courtyard at the high priest's house. So you've got this illegal trial going on in the middle of the night. It wasn't legal by uh, Sanhedrin standards, by Jewish standards. Illegal trial in the high priest's house. High priest would have been a very wealthy man, so it's this bit of a mansion with a big courtyard. And at the edge of the courtyard would have been sort of a gate, sort of a gated community to the road. And in the courtyard, maybe a well, I'm not sure, but certainly a fire pit of sorts. So you've got this fire going on in the courtyard. You've got people who are following this through the night. The Sanhedrin is inside the high priest's house, some other servants and helpers. Maybe some soldiers are outside around the fire. Peter is off by a gate on the edge of the street. I'm not sure if he started there or if he ended up there in the middle of this story. I think he might have started by the fire. People are warming themselves by the fire. Peter is sort of lurking around. And we know the story. There were three confrontations, three denials or betrayals. First, there's a servant girl in the courtyard. She looks at Peter. She says, I know you, you also were with him. Peter's response, I, I don't know what you're talking about. A few minutes later, because she couldn't get it out of her mind, and what's going on inside is pretty serious, so Jesus' disciples should be in some trouble as well. A different servant girl, perhaps she had talked to the first one. This, this fellow was with him. Peter, I don't know the man. 
All right, don't you love that? I don't know the man. It's kind of like when one of your kids is acting up and you say to your spouse, your child, you know, you don't even mention the name, your child, I don't know the man. Doesn't even say Jesus. Makes it impersonal. I don't know the man. And he uses an oath. So he sort of swears, and by swearing it wouldn't be more cursing, it would be like, may such and such happen to me, or I swear by heaven, I swear by the throne of God. The more more important something that you swear by is, the more serious your oath is. So when it says he's swearing something, he's not cursing, he's saying, you know, I swear by heaven, or I swear by this or that, that I'm telling the truth. Third time, a group of people now have Peter's attention. And they've noticed his first two responses. And they've noticed, you know, Peter's got a funny little accent. Sounds like he's from those fishing communities up north. Said, you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. I don't know the man. And he calls down curses from heaven should he be lying. The rooster crowed. One of the Gospels gives this detail. Peter looks into, through the window, the trial of Jesus. Jesus looks out the same window and sees Peter just after the rooster crowed. Their eyes met. Peter ran into the night weeping. He's denying even knowing who Jesus of Nazareth is, who he followed for three years. He's denied even knowing the Son of God, who had been performing miracles with the Twelve for three years. Not only is he denied it, he's called down curses on himself if he's lying. He's done everything to distance himself from Jesus. Well, that's the elephant in the room. When you get back together after the resurrection, how are we going to deal with that? Peter was their vocal leader. It was Jesus, then Peter. And Peter really messed up. As do we. Life is not a series of new highs, we make mistakes. And some of them we make pretty publicly. Second point in this passage, beyond failure, Jesus is always pressing us for reconciliation. So that's the purpose here. Jesus is trying to get together with Peter, and he's trying to walk through what happened. Now, one of the problems that some of us might have, I know I was sort of wired this way, especially when I was younger, there's a tendency to feel like God turns his back on us when we fail. You know what I'm saying? You do something really bad, you're thinking, oh man, God must be really mad with me. He's, he, he left the house and he's down the block and he's not talking to me and I gotta go sort of run and catch him. The reality is just the opposite. You know, the first couple of pages of scripture, you've got a pretty significant failure. You know, Adam and Eve, they're together in the garden. Eve makes her famous fruit salad out of that one tree she wasn't supposed to. And, uh, you know, Satan shows up and convinces them it, Looks pretty good. She eats it. She gives it to Adam. 
how do they respond to that situation? They immediately recognize something has changed, their moral natures have changed, and what do they do? A couple of things. They make clothes. There wasn't even a, a word for clothes yet. And they're making clothes. And, and when God comes looking for them, they have made clothes and they're hiding. All right? Two interesting situations. When God came walking towards them in the cool of the day and evidently in the Garden of Eden before the fall, God in some personal human manifestation or, or divine manifestation, I shouldn't say human, but God would walk with them in the cool of the day. Evidently, it was sort of their thing. God would say, I'll see you at 5 o'clock. You know, mountain time. Five o'clock mountain time. They made sure, okay, you're not talking about standard time? No, I'm talking mountain time. Five o'clock mountain time, we're going to take a walk. God would show up. So that day, after the fruit salad, and there's a little indigestion from that one, after the fruit salad, they go, they, they kill something, they get the skins. I'm not sure how they did this fast, but it, you know, some miraculously fast tanning. They clothe themselves, and they're hiding. And what are the two questions God asks? Who told you you were naked? Like, where'd this come from? The fashion's okay, but who gave you the idea that it was necessary? And also, they're hiding, and when God recognizes that, of course, he knew all of this. He's just playing along with them. Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat of? Who told you you were naked? And did you eat that bad fruit? But God showed up, is my point, he didn't stay home that day. He didn't remove himself. He showed up at the same time as usual, five o'clock, mountain time, to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, just like they always did. Sin had broken humanity. It would only be moments before they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Sin had broken the world and brought a curse on nature and everything in it. And God is right there with them talking about it. See, that's what has been, in my own life, been hard for me to believe about God. I always thought when I did something wrong, God would distance himself as much as possible. But he doesn't. And Jesus wasn't avoiding Peter. The initial story here is about the recognition of Jesus. You know, he's on the shore and so on. Jesus had told them to go to Galilee after the resurrection. So there's other details in the story, but it's about this reconciliation. Some actually, you know, we're going to go into the early part of this story. Some actually criticized Peter and the disciples for going back to fishing. And so there are pastors who've looked at this passage and they've said, well, you know, Peter went back to fishing. And that's a big part of the sermon. You know, Peter went back to fishing. He'd sort of given up on the kingdom as though going back to fishing was a sign of giving up on the movement and Jesus and so on. That's a huge stretch. There's no indication that there's any authorial intent behind that. Peter went back to fishing for the same reason you would go back to fishing. Jesus said, go back to Galilee. Peter went back to Galilee. He used to run a fishing business there. Maybe dad still had the boats or he rented one. They're in limbo. Future's unclear. Peter knows how to fish. He's like, hey guys, I'm going fishing. Anyone want to come with? Seven of them around the boat. They fished all night. They caught nothing. Jesus is on the shore. So he's on the shore. It's early morning. It's mist, a little fog in the air. They don't recognize him. They're a long ways away. He's on the shore. He says, you know, hey guys, catch anything? No, no. Why don't you cast on the right-hand side of the boat? 
Now, what's interesting is this could just be Jesus facilitating sort of another miraculous catch of fish, and it was noted what happened here. Or it could be, and this would not be uncommon, and I've seen this, you've probably seen this if you go fishing, and there's a lot of uh, certain kinds of lakes. We'll have a lot of schools of small fish. And sometimes you can see them from a distance. You might not be able to see them if you're right next to them. From a distance, you can see how they're stirring the surface of the water. So it wouldn't be unusual in the Sea of Galilee to see a school of fish that fishermen right on top of them can't see. I kind of like to go with the miraculous side here and think Jesus is going to send 153 fish into that net. So he says, cast on the right side of the boat. So I believe this was probably a drag net based on the depth of the water they would have been in and so on. So they start, uh, they, they drop a, a net in that's got sort of anchors and buoys and they kind of create a big circle. They probably take the dinghy out, the little boat to do that. The regular fishing boat would have been, we found one of these by the way, about 27 feet long by about seven or eight feet wide, four and a half feet high. So good sized fishing boat, like a little yacht. But they had that along with a dinghy they would have had thousands of pounds of gear in that boat, so it wouldn't have been a little boat. They take the dinghy out from the big boat. They run this net around. Immediately, there's success. They can feel fish pounding the edge of the net. So they use the dinghy. They close the circle. They trap the fish. They're close to shore. The Bible says they're only 100 yards away or so. They start pulling this into shore. Peter has a little deja vu moment. He's like, oh, we've been here before. Remember that time early in Jesus' ministry where we filled two boats with fish and they were sinking? Nets were ready to break. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. Actually, John said that. Peter grabbed his cloak, put it on, dove in, swam to shore. The rest of the guys are pulling this dragnet with the dinghy towards shore. They pull it on and some eyewitness who had a little bit of an ego said, yeah, there were 153 fish. Don't want to lose count of that. Let's get that in the Bible for all eternity. So when we get to heaven, they'll say, hey, dude, 153, good day. Kind of broke the limit. Did fish and game visit you that day? They brought him all to shore. Jesus looked different in his glorified or post-resurrected state. Now, we don't want to hide from that. It kind of indicates it here. None of them wanted to ask him, is it the Lord? So there's obviously some recognition issue after the resurrection. We see it other places, too. After Jesus comes out of the tomb, he kind of says, it is I to one of the women, if you recall that. He was walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They didn't recognize him until he's explaining the Old Testament. Remember when he's with his disciples, he's like, look at my hands, look at my side. It's me. Look at my feet. There's nail marks. But I don't know if he's partly glorified or whatever, but he looked different a little bit. They knew it was him. Jesus made breakfast, fish and chips. Took Peter for a walk. Verse 20 indicates that John is following the two of them. And there's no avoiding the conversation that needs to happen. It's loaded with allusions to Peter's failure. Jesus wasn't trying to avoid this at all. In fact, it, it's almost a little cruel. But since it's Jesus, we probably shouldn't use the C word, but it's almost a little cruel. Jesus takes him through all the detail, I think, so that Peter's confession can be with a full knowledge of that Jesus knows everything he did wrong and he still loves him. Verse 15, they finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Peter's grieved. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Tend my sheep. What's going on here? Well, there's about three different things going on in the Greek language that don't jump out in the English. One of them is very clear, I should say, but a couple of them aren't. One of them, the first one, is that there are three questions about love and loyalty likely to mirror Peter's three denials and betrayals. So Jesus asked it three times, kind of to remind Peter, I said you'd mess up three times. So Jesus is kind of putting the knife in and twisting it pretty good here. But when he gets to the content of the question, do you love me more than these? Uh, some scholars have said, is he talking about, do you love me more than the boats and fishing? Are you ready to follow me? Do you love me more than the other men and these companions? That doesn't make sense either. It really seems to be, do you really love me more than everyone else loves me? Is your devotion really better than everyone else? Because it wasn't long ago, I recall at the Last Supper, even if everyone else falls away, I won't. In fact, I'm willing to die for you. Peter, let's talk about that conversation we had a few weeks ago. The whole, you're the only one I can count on conversation. We really twisted the knife there. And then there's an interplay between a couple of Greek words for love, gape and phileo. In fact, and I, I'm not crazy about this translation on this issue, the NIV does a little better job with this, where the first two times Jesus says, do you love me? The NIV says, do you truly love me? It's the Greek word agapao. And then the third time he uses the word phileo, which is another word for love, and it can be divine love. So scholars disagree about this. Agape is really a word for love that is popularized by the New Testament to mean divine sacrificial love. Phileo can mean that too. It's the word for love, love of God, love of wife, love of family. I mean, phileo is a strong word for love. It's like the regular word for love in the Greek language until agape became a popular word. But the key here is this. Jesus used them both in the same paragraph in context, which means he's intending a distinction. So it's more like this. They get together, they finish breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you really, really love me, agapao, more than the rest of these people love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my lambs. Said to him again, Simon, son of John, do you really, really, really love me? Lord, you know I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Third time, Simon, how much do you really love me? I mean, you're saying it, but I don't think you really, really love me. Peter was grieved. He said, Lord, you know I love you. He uses the word gnosko, which would be used of Adam knowing his wife, Eve. In other words, this is intimate connection between them. It's, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus needed Peter for the future. That's why Jesus put him through this. He needed Peter for the future. The church was going to be built on Peter's leadership initially. Peter needed to make this right to restore a relationship and confidence that God could use him because Jesus had a future for him. And three times it's like, Peter, feed my sheep. You're going to be taking care of the church. Peter, 
You're going to die for me. He says that in this passage. Yeah, I couldn't count on you a month ago, but I know that someday you're going to die in a similar way that I die. And Peter was crucified upside down. He didn't feel he was worthy to die like Jesus. And he said, Peter, follow me. And I believe the Greek is the present tense, which means keep following me. But there had to be some honesty, some confession first. Confess, the word is homo legeo. Homo means same, legeo, to say. Peter needed to say the same thing as Jesus about his failure. They needed to come to a common understanding. And so Jesus exposed Peter's failure and revealed a wonderful future. Isn't that what we need from God? We can't hide anything. You mess up, really, is it that secret? It might be your secret, but it's not a secret between you and God. It might not even be a secret between you and others. God knows the dirt fully, and he wants to restore us, and he's got great plans for us afterwards. But you've got to get through it. Just a few apps as we close. Beyond failure. First, remember God's hiring history and be encouraged. I love this. Abraham, I mean, I love Abraham, but he's kind of gutless, and he had a lying problem. So he's evidently got this beautiful wife that he's so afraid somebody's going to kill him and take his wife that he literally goes around telling everyone it's his sister. All right, I don't really respect that. Maybe in that culture, that's what you did. That's my sister. Yeah, okay. I consider that not to be great material to build the future of faith on, all right? Moses, he had murder on his rap sheet, and he is the number one leader in Israel's history. David, adultery and murder on his rap sheet. Paul, state-sanctioned persecutor of Christians. Peter, three-time loser. I kind of feel like I fit in with this group, you know? I'm encouraged. Maybe God can use me too. Look at what he's been using in the past. I sort of dig the group I'm in with. God's hiring history is not that great. It's been people just like you and me. Second, know that God is never the one distance himself when we fail. In the Garden of Eden, five o'clock mountain time, God's there to take the walk with Adam and Eve, even though they had betrayed him. John 21, Peter's really messed up. Jesus is there with the fire, making breakfast, talking about what happened. When you fail, your first inclination is, God doesn't want to be around me. God hates me. Now he's ready to show up at the next meal, work it out, and move on. Because nothing is gained by not doing that. Third, have a regular time of soul cleansing in your life. Now, this is important, and theologians actually sort of talk about this. There's a little bit of a problem with, you know, kind of having to have all of our sins confessed to be right with God. And I just want to mention what the sort of the strain is here. In the Bible, when it says that we come to faith in Christ, we are justified, which means we are declared righteous. God views us as righteous, just like he views his son Jesus as righteous. And when we come to faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is sort of legally sort of an accounting term, put on your account in heaven. You come to faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness is put on your account, your sins are put on Jesus on the cross. This great exchange called justification. 
So here's the question. If you're justified, if you're declared righteous, can you ever not be right with God? Well, the answer is yes and no. Legally, no. You are right with God no matter what you do. You are right with God. Your sins have been paid for. The righteousness of Christ is on your account. You are right with God. And if that's the case, why would God ever need your confession? Why would you ever have to confess sin? So there's this second issue that has not to do with your legal standing, but more your practical standing with God. It has more to do with a sense of fellowship and a restored relationship. When you really make a big boo-boo with God, it's not God that ran away. You're going to tend to run away. Just like when you have a relational dynamic with a human being and something bad happens between you. You know that in order to sit down and break bread and have a good time, you're going to need to talk about it. So I, my view is that confession is more for our benefit than God's because we need to go through that process. We're right with God because of justification. But in a practical sense, we won't feel right with God. We won't feel the ability to be close to him if we've got some major issue that we haven't dealt with. And another issue, I mean, because I don't believe it's possible to be fully confessed anyway, because I don't know if we can even figure out all the things that we mess up in. But have a regular time of soul cleansing in your life, whether that's praying through the Lord's Prayer, you know, that forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us and walking through those situations, but make sure that you keep short accounts with God. And finally, learn something. Don't waste a failure. Steve Jobs said, I was lucky. I found what I loved to do early in life was Steve Wozniak, and I started Apple in my parents' garage when I was 20. We worked hard, and in 10 years, Apple had grown from just the two of us to a $2 billion company with over 4,000 employees. We just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, a year earlier. I had just turned 30, and then I got fired. How can you get fired from a company you started? Well, as Apple grew, we hired someone who I thought was very talented to run the company with me. For the first year or so, things went well. Then our visions of the future began to diverge, and eventually we had a falling out. When we did, our board of directors sided with him. So at 30, I was out, and very publicly. What had been the focus of my entire adult life was gone, and it was devastating. I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything, and it freed me to enter one of the most creative periods of my life. During the next five years, I started a company named Next, another company named Pixar, and fell in love with an amazing woman who had become my wife. Pixar went on to create the world's first computer animated film, Toy Story, now the most successful animation studio in the world. And in a remarkable turn of events, Apple bought Next, I returned to Apple, and the technology we developed at Next is at the heart of Apple's current renaissance. Lorene and I have a wonderful family together. Pretty sure that none of this would have happened if I hadn't been fired from Apple. It was awful tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. When we go through failure, and that was viewed as failure, that was like the number one news item in the world, don't waste it. You're going to make mistakes. Oswald Avery said, whenever you fall, pick something up. I was in my condo gym yesterday lifting weights, and an older man came in. He was on the treadmill. And we were talking a little bit, and he's on the treadmill, and he's kind of going at it. He's getting himself in shape. He's 81. And so 40 years older than me. 
81, he's on the treadmill. And he's going, and then this woman comes in who's an older woman as well. And she comes in, and, and she starts talking to him. He starts talking to her. And he's on the treadmill. And he loses his focus, and he hits the band. He stopped walking or something, hit the treadmill band. He got thrown right into the wall. Now that he's okay, it's one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. And he was okay, and I didn't laugh. I mean, I went over, I'm like, are you okay? And I was like, just stay there for a second. Then he starts getting him, helping him up, and I'm talking to him. The woman looks at me, and she says, I shouldn't have come here. I'm like, no, that's the greatest compliment. You walked in a room, and a man got thrown into the wall because he could not focus on you. Take the compliment. You know, she's this older lady. I'm not sure if she knew what I meant, but I'm like, the ultimate compliment for a woman is she walks in the gym, and guys hit the walls, you know, and get injured. That's like the best thing that can happen to you as a woman. We're not putting this on the internet today. <laughs> My point is, and there is a point, when life's treadmill throws you into the wall, learn something. Learn something. I'm sure the next time that old man is in the condo and she walks in the gym, he'll be sure to look at his feet as well. Make sure he's still walking. Don't want to get thrown into the wall by looking at a pretty woman. When you get thrown into the wall in life, learn something. Because you will get thrown into the wall. And God wants you to have a future. You've got to get past the mistake. It's not hard for him to get past it. You've got to get past it. So have that time with Jesus. Make it right. Move on. Nothing is served by you rethinking over and over and over your failures. Everything is served by working them out with God and moving forward. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. I love this story because we all can relate to it. We make mistakes and some of them are doozies. And when we do, we, we just tend to not know how to face you. I pray that you would help us to know that you, you didn't go anywhere. You're ready to meet with us. You're ready to move forward. Help us to walk through that process with you so that we are as well because your kingdom is built with the gifts of very flawed people because we all are very flawed. And we're your plan to change the world. Very flawed people who just found your grace and goodness. Help us to learn to, to do that and help us to reflect that to others around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.